we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo. For this segment of the program, we're again looking at health disparities, but I think we haven't come at it this way before. Today, we're looking at the partnerships between insurance companies and all the data they have on health outcomes and the people on the grounds doing outreach in the communities. With that in mind, we have one representative from each side in that sort of description. Reverend George Nicholas just received a national award for some of his work with the African American Health Equity Task Force. He's here now with Dr. Michael Kropp, MD, the President and CEO of Independent Health. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I know, Reverend Nicholas, we've talked to you before about health disparities, but let's just start with a quick recap. What are they? How insidious are they? Well, you know, health disparities are, are really a, an outcome of, you know, structural and uh, institutional uh, racism as it's impacted the, the social factors, all the things that happen outside of the health healthcare system in terms of the social determinants of health, uh, where you live, uh, the education uh, that your children may get, the income, the wealth that you may have, your interaction with the criminal justice system. And here in Western New York, and particularly in the African-American community, we have some really uh, unacceptable health outcomes to the point where if you are African-American and you live in a certain community, that you will have a greater prevalence for having uh, chronic disease like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and even a shorter length of life. You've been talking about this for a while. Yeah. The, the shooting on May 14th certainly, I think, brought a lot of attention to issues of racial equity. But how long have you been involved in this work? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> I, you know, most of my professional life, right, and, you know, as a as a clergy member, and even before I was a, a member of the clergy, I used to be the uh, lead at the Geneva B. Scruggs Community Health Center, I've done work with the United Way and all different things, and always around the issues of of equity and helping those who I have been, you know, left out of the system. And then when I went into uh, ministry full time uh, in I think the year two thousand or nineteen ninety nine or so, um, I committed to working in the urban setting and and really bringing together the work of the church and the work of serving the community. So I, I've been at this for a few, few, a few years. Yeah, few, just a couple. Yeah. And and that's kind of the reason I, I wanted to get your history because you have recently received a national honor for this particular work. It came to you in part because of the intervention of our other guest here, Dr. Michael Kropp, the CEO yeah. of Independent Health. 
Talk about the award that George has won and why you felt, because you were the one that nominated him, why you felt that he should have gotten it. So the award, Pastor Nicholas, most uh, well-deserved award um, was um, the Bernard Tyson Award for Health Equity. Now, Bernard Tyson was uh, the pioneering CEO of Kaiser Permanente, mm. uh, who unfortunately passed away about uh, four years ago now, um, but has left an incredible legacy, uh, not just in his organization at Kaiser Permanente, but through uh, an organization that Kaiser was a member of. We at Independent Health are members of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Uh, and so his reach was broad and deep uh, across the country. And um, to honor him, that we've created an annual award given by the Alliance of Community Health Plans. And uh, the work that uh, Pastor Nicholas has done for many, many years, but particularly uh, the work that he did early in the pandemic to help bring necessary resources um, to bear in East Buffalo that made such a huge difference in reducing uh, the obscene mortality that we were seeing in East Buffalo before uh, the pastor's work uh, brought about the reduction of mortality was so extraordinary that um, there was no contest when I nominated him that uh, nationally he was the individual who stood out. I, I think those of us in the media get criticized sometimes for being too negative, and it intrigues me to hear you say that in large part, perhaps because of Reverend Nicholas here, there has been progress. Talk about the reduction in mortality. Well, Pastor Nicholas can uh, talk, uh, I think, about this. I, I didn't <laughs> want him to be immodest, but if you're willing to be immodest. I mean, so, so, so what happened you know, during the, the, the beginning of the COVID uh, outbreak and when it was introduced here into Western New York, because we had done our work uh, in terms of looking at health outcomes in uh, the most distressed communities, most vulnerable communities. We knew that, you know, COVID-19 would strike harder uh, in communities where you have pre-existing conditions such as diabetes, uh, heart disease, and asthma. And if you look at the health outcomes in, in the east side of Buffalo, specifically the African-American community, there's really high rates of asthma heart disease and diabetes. So with the introduction of COVID-19 into those communities, we knew that those communities were going to be extremely vulnerable. And so through the work with uh, Dr. Raul Vasquez uh, at uh, Givon, uh, my colleagues from Kaiser Pointer and some other, other leaders within the community, uh, we helped develop what we call the COVID-19 response team. It was funded by Erie County, and we were able to set up a response call response centers where we we actually we literally called everybody in the community, and then we and then those who did not have phones, we contracted with the National Witness Project, and they went in the midst of COVID, knocking on doors and checking up on people, and we wanted to give them information about COVID. We wanted to find out uh, if they had access to primary care. We wanted to find out if they needed food or mental health services. 
and and also wanted to give them information because everybody was just didn't know. And then as the testing became more available, we advocated for testing sites to be located in the community. As the vaccine became available, we we got information out into the community about things, those things, and all those all those things working together. The call centers were embedded in about ten churches on the east side of Buffalo and on and some on the west as well. And and we really just did uh, just good old fashioned outreach and then connecting people to where they could get services. We were delivering food to people where they needed uh, help with mental health services. Well, we you know, but we we brought Best Self in and others to partner with us and be uh, giving referrals out to where people could get mental health services. And the data shows that we were able to, at the beginning of the pandemic, about uh, 33% of the early deaths were out of the African-American community, whereas we're only 12% of the county population. And then throughout the, the life of the project, you could see the, the fatalities being reduced to the point where we were able to get them right at about the level of the population. Now, obviously, there is no vaccine for diabetes or asthma or heart disease. Mm-hmm. So a part of your research obviously was, sure, uh, get the vaccine, get some public education going there. But is there anything that you did during COVID that is translatable what did you learn there that could perhaps apply to the broader health disparities that we've been talking about in, in the context of? Well, I think one of the best learnings is, is the importance of community engagement, you know, and and uh, for government and the private sector to invest in community, right, and to engage the community as a partner in dealing with public health and the public health crisis and I think you know, Dave, move, Dave, moving the the work forward as it relates to moving towards health equity. Uh, I think one of the best parts of this story is here in in Western New York, we're developing the type of broad based collaboration that crosses ethnicity, race, and sector. Right. So you have, you know, a business leader, healthcare leader you know, CEO of Independent Health, partnering with a, a local pastor, right? And work we've been doing through the Population Health Collaborative and, and now with the merger with Healthy League, we're, bringing, we're creating tables where people who have influence and access to resources are partnering, right, with community leaders to really work on solutions, not a one-off of, you know, Independent Health does great work on charity with it. They have, they have a lot of programs that are very good, but now we're moving, we're moving deeper, right? Not just the charities work, but now how do we, how do we transform communities? How do we look at the, the root causes that drive these health outcomes and how do we partner for solutions? And I think that's where really, what's really exciting. Dr. Kropp, go ahead, jump on in. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, reinforce uh, what Pastor has said that, there's a huge lesson here in in terms of our ability to reach people in the community who haven't had the access and the knowledge that perhaps has disenfranchised them some, but reaching them through the community, 
and through the trusted individuals that they know, whether it's at a church group, whether it's through the block clubs, uh, through Urban League, other community entities that are out there and meeting these people where they are, understanding what their needs are and being able to bring knowledge and resources in the context of their environment to them. And it's exciting to know that this story that took place here in Buffalo, where the mortality was basically cut in half, largely by the efforts of this community workforce that was backed by you know other entities, that is a huge lesson that's being taken nationally through pastors' exposure, presentations at the National Academy of Medicine and uh, the National uh, Forum for Prevention of Heart Disease and Stroke. That's a huge, huge story that Buffalo is front and center nationally on. And so I think for us, what's imperative is the opportunity to build on this success and to recognize, you know, to as players in the health system to you know be a little more vulnerable and recognize that yeah we might have some of the answers but in order to get that last mile of connectivity into the community where it's needed you've got to work with the community I don't mean you specifically but you're you're the doctor in front of me has the health care system have you not done enough outreach in the past oh absolutely yeah, absolutely and some of it, is not necessarily by design, but, you know, the pastor mentioned there's, you know, institutional racism that finds its way in unconscious biases that we have that just, you know, we, you know, it's really unfortunate uh, that we spend so much time training clinicians around the science. And, you know, the science is changing daily. And we don't spend enough time training clinicians about how to take the science and apply it in the context of the individuals that are going to be needing it. And training the, the clinicians to be able to accept the evolution of science, but to be able to continue to provide it in the context of the individuals and their needs. Hey, it's almost as if, and I, this sounds so harsh, I, I, I hesitate to express it this way, but it sounds as if the doctors, perhaps, if they don't need a lesson in empathy, they at least need a lesson in awareness to see problems. Is that well? Yeah, and I think you know, you know, a lot of times now in the healthcare profession, you know, there's there's a lot of pressure on doctors to see a lot of patients in short periods of time. There's not the opportunity to maybe be a little more holistic in your treatment of a, of, of a patient. What do I mean? When that patient comes into the, the exam room, all the social challenges that patient has comes into that room with them, mm. right? And so, so the doctor is limited in, in, in doing a diagnosis on what kind of has manifested itself physically, but then all the other forces that may be driving 
these things. Uh, the healthcare system is not built for that doctor to kind of dig deeper into those things, or he or she may not have the expertise around this areas. So we have to figure out a way when, you know, there's a reason why, you know, African-Americans have such such high rates of diabetes and hypertension and, and heart disease and asthma and all these other things. And we need to begin to identify what those reasons are in the social context and then be able to develop policies and look at how dollars are being invested to begin to start address those needs. One of the big things is housing. And, you know... Uh, but, doc- but wait a second. Uh, housing is not a medical issue. Well, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so we know that, you know, if you read Dr. Henry Taylor's report, The Harder We Run, mm-hmm. it talks about just the the high rates of substandard housing uh, in these very same communities where you have these these disproportionate rates yeah. of these chronic diseases. So there is, you know, yeah, whether it relates to just proper ventilation or all these other things that, that go on into having a, a healthy house, mm-hmm. right? That impacts, right, your your health. And so, and so, all these other social factors that drive. We, when we, one of the things that was exposed uh, after the May Fourteenth massacre was the fact that many people in these communities with these high rates of chronic diseases don't have access to healthy food, right? And when the one supermarket that served a large part of that community was shuttered, it created a access to healthy food crisis. Right. Where you had to bring people from the outside to literally, you know, set up uh, uh, places to give away food. That's a structural issue. That's a systemic issue. And so so when these patients come in, the doctor, all these dynamics, I mean, with maternal health, all these other things, they come in with that with with those issues. That right. Absolutely. And so we have to figure out a way to to begin to set up systems where we can address those things. So, and one of the things that concerns me is oftentimes in our responses to these high rates of diseases uh, and high rates of, of issues and problems is that we want to build bigger service systems. To, to, and and I'm, not, I'm not certain that's what we want to do. I think we want to, we want to address some of the root causes so that we don't have to have, you know, as many quote unquote services for a commute for for uh, in concentrated in one community, where we can begin to start investing dollars in addressing some of those root causes, so that we the the manifestation of these chronic diseases won't be so prevalent. Just so I understand, when you say we don't know, need more services, you're talking about layers and bureaucracy. You're you're not declining the need perhaps for another. No, no, no another provider or another community. No, no, no. When I say those services, I'm talking about just just planning. So, for example, you know, if you, the, if you think, if you're projecting, right, you're going to have an X amount of people that are going to need food 20 years from now. The answer isn't to to build a bigger system to to give out food to people who don't have food. The answer is to figure out why, what is driving that projection? Uh, you know what I mean? Right. You know what I mean? So you, you want to be able, you have to meet people's immediate needs. So I'm not saying that, but but to, to say that, you know, the only solution to these disparities, 
to these inequalities, right, is develop services to to address those who have been victimized by these inequalities, as opposed to investing dollars into finding structural solutions, right, yeah. so that you won't have as many people in in the food line or the bread line, as they consultants call it, or you won't have so many people that need all these support systems. Whereas, if they would just have an opportunity to 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 build the kind of lives that they would like for themselves and their families, I think that we got to think more uh, strategic about you know uh, bringing equity. Not only you can't have health equity and have inequalities in education, inequalities in income, inequalities in air and water quality in certain communities. You just, that doesn't matter what you do inside the healthcare system, you'll never be able to bring that kind of equity unless you introduce these other factors and then begin to to intentionally do things to, to bring those, bring equity into the community. And that's why this partnership you know, with 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 community and corporate is is essential in getting to the solutions. You've given me a great segue too. Part of the reason why I think it was valuable to have Dr. Crop here is you are the CEO of Independent Health. Insurance groups like yours have a lot of data. Reverend Nicholas was just talking a little bit sure. about planning. Yeah, I, I'm betting that there's a connection here between planning and data. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's been some public airing of uh, issues around one specific example of um, health disparity, and, and that is the incidence of asthma on the west side of Buffalo that was particularly acute when the trucks waiting to go into Canada oh, sure. were bridge. Yeah. right there and, um, you know, idling, and the fumes, you know, were bringing this about. And, and so here you've got an example of a specific uh, cause in a specific geography and some structural change that needed to come about in order to take that disparity and, and move it away. You know, it's interesting. That was a very uh, significant population-based look at the data. Uh, and a uh, pulmonary physician at, at Buffalo General spearheaded that effort. At the same time he was looking broadly at that, he came to me in, with a specific case that was equally interesting and, and probably more under the radar. And that was a patient of his who had uh, some chronic lung problems and had been admitted to the hospital over a hundred times the prior year. Mm. And uh, he went actually out to the home and did a home visit and found out that she was cooking with natural gas. And the natural gas stove was throwing off irritants to the lung. And so he managed to buy her an air filter and put it in the kitchen. And the next year she had two hospitalizations. Wow. And so how often is that repeated around the community? Tell me a little bit more about data because in past programs here, I've had other doctors on Dr. Willie Underwood, who's involved heavily locally with the yep. health equity work. Uh, and, and he sketched out something very interesting for me that said, basically, the government is in a great position to incentivize health equity because they measure so much stuff, because there is so much data on 
outcomes and data on equity. Certainly is something that the CMS has at their disposal. I'm betting that that same level of data intensity to a degree is a factor at a place like independent health. It is. And I think that there's a level of maturity about looking at the data around health equity that's advancing quite rapidly. And one of the things that um, I think we're beginning to understand is that an investment in health equity mm. creates a positive economic return for the community. Okay. And if you look at what we see in terms of the costs of poor health, and these are both medical costs and lost productivity in the workplace, that those costs are huge. And our ability to close the gap and bring down the rates of hypertension, the rates of diabetes, the chronic diseases that follow on from that end up in, and perhaps the hospitals aren't excited about this in the current economic model, but less hospitalization, yeah, right? less of those significant events that are um, expensive and traumatic to individuals. But more importantly, our ability to close the gaps uh, on uh, poor health enables people to be more productive at work, to keep that job, to have the economic sure. resources that Pastor Nicholas was talking about, to be able to eat better, to be able to address the housing issues. And so I'm really excited now about the government catching up with some of the private economic analyses that have been going on to demonstrate that an investment in health equity really does create a positive economic return for an organization like Independent Health, but more importantly, for the broader community. Yes. yes. Can the government look at all the big pots of data they have, or even that you have, and say, oh, gee, outcomes in this particular um, zip code are bad, and use that kind of as a carrot and a stick? Incentivize better outcomes by analyzing the data they have on where these outcomes are not ideal. Absolutely. And if uh, the government were really going to take advantage of this opportunity, they would do what Dr. Underwood suggested, and that is put some incentives into what's coming out of CMS through the states to localities so that if every locality is starting with a certain baseline in terms of their inequities, and, and that information is readily available right. um, through public data. Start to reward those communities that have figured out how to work together like Buffalo is working together to close those gaps. And more money should be flowing to those communities that have built the processes to have that kind of collaboration with demonstrable gap closures instead of just good money after bad uh, as how the current funds flow from the federal government through the states to localities. Give me a little bit of Insurance 101. Are you under that same sort of outcome pressure where statistics determine funding? Yes, we are. Um, our government programs, the amount of money that we get from the federal government directly for Medicare and from the state for Medicaid 
is somewhat dependent upon the quality of the results that we deliver. And going forward, there is the incorporation of health equity metrics into that. But I want to take that one step further in terms of yeah. the federal government actually putting more money in play to flow through to the states, which would then flow through to the localities. Because our ability as a community to close the gap is going to be dependent upon not just independent health. It's going to be dependent upon the community work. It's going to be dependent upon the other insurers and the health systems. And so more money that comes through collectively to the community, I think, is what should be rewarded in terms of the kind of effort that's been built in this community to move the ball further down the field. Reverend Nicholas, you're shaking your head. Go oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to look at what are the drivers of poor health outcomes and then what are the solutions, right, and fund those things. So if we, and 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 if it's, if so if we do an assessment of, of a patient, of an individual, and we find that, well, their housing is inadequate or their son or daughter is, you know, really struggling in school, or if, if the you know air and water quality in their their home is is not good, or whatever those things are, then we need to be able to put something in place to address them. And there are not there there are enough resources in order to do that. It's just that we have not prioritized these things, and we haven't taken the time to kind of build the kind of system that would, you know, that would address those things. I think in other countries, they they invest healthcare dollars into prevention stuff at a, at a much higher rate than we do in, in this country. So we, we have to, for a simple, simple example, when you say, you know, exercise is important, right? Well, you know, the places like the Planet Fitnesses and all that, those are all in the suburbs. Yeah. Right? You don't see that something like that on the east side. Wait, uh, you do. Which would see the medically oriented gym in Jericho Road built. Right, right, right. Okay. Right, right. There's one. Yeah, yeah but I yeah. Mean, it, it, But the big commercial scenes are not there. Yeah. People in there, right? And that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, I've seen it. It's a nice place. It's but, really nice. But, but we need to figure out we have lots of vacant spaces and stuff. Yeah. Can we have robust, I, I call them wellness centers? Right. Where 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 there there are facilities where people can actively engage in things that will have a positive impact upon their health and and figure out a way to to fund this stuff. But I want to shift gears a, a bit because some of the uh, systemic changes that are needed around issues of housing are, are bigger than just health care, as you indicated. Yeah. But. One thing that we're seeing is the impact of food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And whether it's in East Buffalo or West Buffalo or out in South Wales, you know, this is not something that is um, just unique to a specific geography. In our Western New York community, we're seeing the impact of that. And as you noted earlier, you know, poor nutrition is going to lead to diabetes. It's going to lead to high blood pressure. It's going to lead to these chronic diseases that we saw. So we are really blessed in our community that there is a tremendous amount of grassroots work going on now to address food insecurity. And getting that right 
is something that I think is within the reach of the health plan to help, within the reach of community resources like Pastor Nicholas sure. and some of these startup organizations like Alex Wright with his African yeah, uh, food African Heritage Food Co-op. African Heritage right. Co-op. Um, so, you know, we just, we got permission from New York State to start this new program right. where most of our folks who have Medicaid qualify for SNAP benefits, the old food stamps. Yeah. A certain percentage don't. We're working to get those on the SNAP benefits. But in working with Alex and working with another partner that we have called Food Smart, we are able to provide meal planning and food delivery services and using the SNAP benefits to be able to now move forward in helping to close the gap on the food insecurity challenge. And I think the first cohort, they, I think they were able to reduce it by 30% for the yep. group. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so there is, I think, some very valuable data for us to be able to look broadly and see where are the opportunities that we can um, understand there's a gap, recognize that there's some community resources ready to be deployed and do the last pieces to put them together to make that difference. Yeah. And again, it's all about partnership. I mean, that's the key. You know, it's it's time out for, you know, corporate America having its plan. Government wants to do it one way. The community people are saying it needs to be done this way. It hasn't worked. And, 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 And we have to create spaces and create tables where we can have conversations across these sectors and across race and really begin to have practical, realistic, but effective solutions to a lot of these issues and then do planning. So you can, we can do, we have a, a first fruits food pantry at our, at our church and we, you know, we, we feed every Tuesday and Saturday. So we can do that the immediate thing while working on the bigger structural things, uh, how do we get greater access? Because one of the things they say, well, you know, well, you know, people ought to eat health, eat healthy, fresh fruits and vegetables, right? And but what if you don't have a venue in your community to do that? And even and then when you look at the the num- the massive poverty that's in a com- lot of communities, well, one of the ironies in life is unhealthy food is cheaper than yeah, unhealthy right. food, right? Right. So so if you're on a limited budget, we know you can go and get ramen noodles or something, which is high in sodium, right? Yeah. But you can buy the they have potato chips, yeah, right? That. And so we got to figure out ways in, in which we uh, not only create access to healthy food in poor, poor communities, but we also have to figure out ways, how do we impact income, right? So that, so that people have the resources to buy those, those healthy foods for their their families. And you just, when you talked about income, you just broadened the discussion big time. Yeah. Uh, we've got to develop ways in, in your mind of having people earn more. Absolutely. I mean, again, we can't, one of the things that, you know, in, in my conversations with people in the healthcare profession, if you, when you do a diagnosis of a person, right, and let's say you diagnose five mm-hmm. things, that makes driving the sickness. You can't just say, well, you know, we'll deal with these three. These other two, you know what I mean? You got to figure out, okay, if we understand what's driving these these poor health outcomes, whatever they may be. 
right? We have to, we can't ignore any of them. We got to figure out how we can address those things. Guy comes into the ER with a hangnail and also a broken bone. You don't look, just look at the hangnail. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's easier for you, you do. <laughs> okay. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. You, you know what you're saying. If, right. if you're not really concerned about that person's condition, you do. Right. But if you're really, you know, if you're really empathetic and and look at that person as a human being and you really want to 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 meet his deep needs, then you have to look at the totality of what's ailing him. And I think we have not done this as a society around these issues of health equity. We've done things where we say, well, we we just dismiss them and act like, oh, well, we just can't address that. And for me, it's impossible for me to accept that, especially when we know that, you know, in this community, you know, when things are important to you, like building a football stadium, we can miraculously, you know, come up with resources, task force, plans, designs, all kinds of stuff. And presto, the same community where you said that you can't do, you mm-hmm. can't find a way to make sure a single mother can feed her child then that's just unbelievable to me. And, and it's something that we just do not accept. And then again, it, it, it requires inclusion. It, it requires collaboration. And it also requires respect. You know, just because a person, you know, is is dealing with some some challenges about where they live or where their child goes to school or whether or not they have access to transportation doesn't mean that they should be treated less than. Just because you have less stuff does not mean that you're less human. And so we, whatever we do, uh, we have to make sure that we, we honor and respect the people that we say we're concerned about and and honor their voices and honor their choices as well and try to help them to address some of the, the many challenges they have on a day-to-day basis. So in this process, there has to be inclusion, but also respect. That's real community engagement, right? Is is you when you're really hearing yeah. the people that Not you just invite. there, but there to hear. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Gentlemen, thanks for much, uh, so much for being here. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. This has been a great conversation, and I hope that uh, people hear this as an invitation wherever wherever they are to get involved in this work around health equity because we need everybody in this battle. The Reverend George Nicholas is a pastor at Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church in Buffalo. He's the chair of the African-American Health Equity Task Force, and Dr. Michael Kropp, MD, is the president and CEO of Independent Health. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Garden Wisdom for Western New York and Southern Ontario. Learn the secrets to planning, cultivating, and nurturing your own extraordinary garden using time-proven solutions and sustainable methods. Garden Wisdom, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app.
Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or on the WBFO app. Use the Talk to Us feature to leave your questions and comments. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Dave Debo. After the top shooting, there were several efforts to make sure that school kids have access to a diverse collection of books on things like African-American history and other related topics about diversity or equality or equity. Most notably, thousands of books were donated by those who responded to an appeal from shooting victim Zaire Goodman. But another one of those efforts is more recent, and it involves a collection of books at the Merriweather Library on Jefferson Avenue, almost right across from the shooting scene. The collection is also at the Central Buffalo Library downtown, and at the Butler Library on the SUNY Buffalo State Campus. This collection is a little different. It was curated by Project Flight, a local literacy nonprofit. Professor Geraldine Bard is with us from that group. Buffalo and Erie County Public Library Director John Spears is also here. And the two of them are obviously connected to any sort of project involving books. But this particular collection actually got its start with students at St. Joseph's Collegiate Institute, and senior Dion Anderson is here now, too. Dion, let's start with you. Student at St. Joseph's Collegiate Institute, and you just suddenly had this idea, or the club, the equity club, had this idea that there wasn't enough materials out there for kids that explain racial equity. Was that, in a nutshell, the way it started? Uh, yeah, it was our moderator, Miss Golda. She kind of brought up the idea and she felt like that we needed more equity and social justice in the city of Buffalo. But specifically not just in the city of Buffalo, but you're talking about equity and the amount of reading materials that are available out there. Yeah. What does that mean? Explain to me why you felt that was necessary. Uh, we feel like equity and social justice is a real topic that needs to be educated more in Buffalo for kids. You know, I honestly didn't know what it was when I was a kid. So I feel like us giving out books to the library to kids will actually educate them more on what needs to be known about people who look like me. What 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 do you think the average person doesn't understand about people who look like you? What do people need to know? People need to know how we are treated, kind of, how fair life should be between everyone in the world, basically. And I'm sure that a lot of your um, impetus for this came, no doubt, because of the shootings on 514. Yeah. How did that impact you? Can you talk a little bit about that? Are you comfortable going there? Yeah. Uh, me personally or as Saint, like St. Saint Joe's? You and then we'll talk about St. Joe's. I mean, I didn't have like any relatives or anybody that I really, really knew who passed away, but I knew the security guard that passed away a little bit. I didn't know him personally. But, like, it really affected me because uh, it was in my neighborhood. So, like, when 
things like that happen in my type of neighborhood, I don't feel safe anymore. So I feel like I couldn't go anywhere because there was rumors going around. There are still people out there who are trying to go to very populated uh, places where there would be a lot of people who look like me at and like just target people who look like me. And is the theory that if more kids read books like this, that perhaps there will be less people who grab a gun and become like the shooter? Uh, yeah. Do you think that'll happen? I mean, not everyone thinks the same, so I honestly can't speak for everyone, but I feel like the right people will make the right decisions. All right, now take me through the rest of the process. So you and other students and your advisors say, we need these books. What happened after that? Uh, so... Ms. Golden, she wanted to kind of get equity and social justice out there. So the way we thought of it was she brought up a charity. So we had a dress down day. We uh, made a petition to our principal, Mr. Spillman, and we said that we want to host a dress down day to raise money for a library that was in the same community as the top shooting. So the Masson community, basically. And we had a dress down day and we basically... She sent the email out to the students explaining what Project Flight was and how we're going to work with Project Flight in the library, with the Meriwether Library. And we asked the students, each student in the school, to donate $5. And that's how we came up to about $2,000 to buy the 111 books for the students. I mean, for the kids, sorry. 111 books, that's huge. That's a lot more than I would have thought uh, you were able to do. Let's bring in Project Flight then. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Dr. Geraldine Bard is with Project Flight. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Dave. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this initiative. I'm standing in for Dr. Betty Capella, co-director of Project Flight with me. This project was envisioned by her and the synergy of St. Joe's students and the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library and Project Flight demonstrates that we're a community of individuals who care about humanitarian leadership. And certainly the students at St. Joe's and the Buffalo and Erie County Library really are the cement that help us all hold the bricks of the community together. Tell me a little bit more about what Project Flight does beyond this project. Who are they? Well, uh, we've been in existence since 1994. We've worked with, uh, as founding partners, the Buffalo News, WGRZ, and of course, the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library, Wegmans, to bring together an opportunity for those in need in our community. And of course, in our community, students at risk, number number three or number four in students at risk throughout the United States for cities our size. We, we have children who are living in homes with parents and caregivers who must make a decision to buy a bottle of milk or to purchase a book for their children. We know they will purchase milk and bread before a book. Uh -huh. So how do we get books into the hands of these children? Our, our motto is, of course, that every child must have a book, read it at grade level, because we truly believe that literacy is an entree out of poverty. And we've worked since 1994 with our partners. And of course, United Way has been a major partner uh, 
Bob Bennett was part of our founding group that. Bob used to be the um, the CEO of the United Way. Before that, he was on the board of Regents. Absolutely. And, and did a lot of work with early childhood education, the uh, Success by Six movement, I think he was Absolutely. a champion of. Absolutely. The idea that if you give kids fundamentals early in life, it certainly helps them down the road. Absolutely. And uh, the United Way has, has uh, through the years, always been at the forefront of such success with children. But the purpose of the initiative here isn't just to bring books, but to bring more socially or, or culturally appropriate materials in, right? The, the purpose of this collection is, first of all, we were personally devastated by the violence that occurred on May 14th right down the street from the Meriwether Library on Jefferson Avenue here in Buffalo, where neighbors, our community, uh, suffered a tragedy and linked with St. Joe's, linked with the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library. We were determined to establish a program that could help us heal. These books that we've developed help develop empathy, build a shared background knowledge that highlights the simple power of kind deeds, advocacy that helps others thrive. We believe that learning effective strategies is violence pre prevention. Uh, let me back up and ask you about that. To what degree do you feel these specific books were needed? What kind of impact might they have down the road? Okay, well... Okay. For example, we have biographies in this collection. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, Salam Aleichem, Desmond Tutu, Mahatma Gandhi. When we read about their lives and dedication to peace and the betterment of humanity, this serves as inspiration and serves to reinforce Dr. King's hope that his and all people's children should be judged by the content of the character, not by any other standard. We believe that all people can be given the same opportunities to pursue life, liberty, happiness, and peace. We have other books that offer strategies which can be implemented to ensure peace. For example, one of the books we've placed, not a biography now, yeah. strategy book, Keeping the Peace, a kid's book of peacemaking by Hanson Anders. It teaches children how to solve conflicts by finding out first what each person wants and ending with a solution. Another book, Why Do We Fight Conflict, War, and Peace by Nikki Walker Battles. We look at protests, we look at standoffs, we look at strikes, we hear about them. The book is designed to have students understand that one way, violence resolves the conflicts. The other uses signs and picket lines. And overall, there are... We start with disagreement, and now how can we take that disagreement with communication, with understanding, and choose peace and in opposed to violence? In this collection, there are 92 books, you and... Uh... Dr. Capella curated them? Uh, essentially 111. Really? That many? Okay. Yes. And again, they're divided between biography and these self-help books. 
just one more, which is one of my favorite. We hear so much about bullying. Say No to Bullying by Louise Spillsbury covered, and it covers the basics of bullying, talks about reasons why people behave badly, and it provides guidance for how to deal with bullies, both personally and on behalf of others. Are you pleased, Dion, with the selection? Oh, yeah, definitely. Tell me why. I feel like this will really explain to the kids in the massive community about what's really going on in life and how they should deal with life in the future. All right. Let's now bring in John Spears, the director of the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library. Thank you. Um, thanks, thanks for stopping by. Does, does this collection make a difference when we look at it in the context of all the other books that the library has? I think it does, um, and there, there's a few reasons for that. One, this collection is highlighted. This is a collection that's pulled out, that there's community involvement in the creation of it. In part, that's why I asked. You, yeah. you probably have a biography or two of Martin Luther King. You probably have a book or two about Mahatma Gandhi, but this is different. We do. Um, a, a lot of the titles we already owned, and and they were kind of scattered over, over our 37 locations. But this is really bringing a, an with intentionality, a collection to the Meriwether Library that is going to, as as Dr. Bart explained, it's, it's going to give some wonderful information on how you can overcome conflict, how you can battle violence. But then those biographies, I think on the East side, anytime you have a biography of, of, of Martin Luther King or of Mahatma Gandhi, it is showing people their own people. And that is, I, I don't think that can be underestimated, the value of that. Just seeing yourself reflected in a library's collection makes the library relevant to you. You know, 30 years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. And so this collection is at the Merriweather on Jefferson, almost almost right across the street from the shooting scene. Yes. Then there's also a the same collection at Buffalo State and the Butler Library. And one at the main library downtown. Yes, we're um, still building those out. They're going to be the, they're going to be the same materials, uh, but the library staff has you know purchased the materials, processed them, cataloged them, and then we'll be adding the collection central, and then uh, we'll be uh, giving those books to to Buffalo State for their library. Do you think it'll make a difference? That's somewhat of a rhetorical question, I know, but I do. I, I do think it's going to make a difference. Um, Any time that you know th there's so many things that are coming together here with this collection there's the books themselves that are in incredible windows into other people's experiences but they're also mirrors for people as well to see themselves and their own experiences it's going to be one place that people can go to find books on peace on tolerance on diversity on inclusion in in the meriwether library and at central and and, and, and above state you know, it, it's pulling it all into one place. And I do think it's going to make a difference. I, I hope that every parent will check out these books and will experience these books with their kids. That would be one of the most beneficial things that could happen is not necessarily just having kids come in here and read them alone, but having kids read these together, read them with their families, read them with their parents so that the discussions can ensue, because that's where the understanding is truly going to come from is when people start discussing these issues and realizing the impact that they can have, not just in their own lives, but in, in Buffalo and beyond. Do you have a favorite in the collection? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, it's, it's, it, 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 it's okay. I, I do like 
biographies, and I believe that uh, Malala's biography is in there, and that is one of my favorites, yes. All right. Dr. Bard? Yes. What's your favorite? Obviously, The Life of King. He instructs us all and reminds us of our better angels. What he, he lived his integrity, and he teaches us all, along with Gandhi, whose, whose teachings he relied on. See, through literature, through language, we practice something that's called cognitive therapy. And cognitive therapy is used by psychologists to allow people to think through something that they might otherwise simply emotionally react to. And when we place problematic issues within a literate environment, we have the opportunity to change one's beliefs and therefore change one's actions. So I have to go to King always. All right. Dion, what's your favorite in the collection, if you, if you have one? Uh, I can't give you the exact name because I haven't had a chance to like actually go to the library yeah, and grab a book. Mm -hmm. But when I was there and they had us pick a book, it was a book with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King on and Gandhi on the front of it. That one kind of grabbed my attention the most because like, those two are real inspirational to me. And I feel like they really explain the meaning of life for people that look like me. All right. Thank you all for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. John Sears is the director of the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library. Dr. Geraldine Bard is professor of English at Buffalo State, as well as co-director of Project Flight. They work on several community literacy projects for children and caregivers. You can learn more about them at projectflight.org. And Dion Anderson is a senior at St. Joseph's Collegiate Institute. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO, our weekly discussion on race and education and culture and our shared humanity. The series is also a podcast available wherever you get yours, and you can listen on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Dave Gibo. Thanks for being with us.